Uh, we'll go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, which is where we are this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's little black Bibles in the seats there, so please do grab one. It's going to be really helpful, maybe more so um, than ever over the next few weeks, for you to have that in front of you for yourself. Uh, we're starting a, a little uh, series uh, today, which will run over the next <clears throat> month or so. Um, a series which has been planned since way back last summer, so um, there's no kind of particular reason why it's at this time. Um, so planned last summer, a series called Real Life, hearing what God has to say about the things which so often occupy our weekly lives and things which so often occupy the thoughts and questions and desires of our hearts. We're going to be looking at sex, marriage, divorce, singleness, widowhood over the next two weeks. Then we're going to look at marriage, parenting, work, and spiritual warfare in Ephesians. Over the first uh, year and a half of the life of the church, we've kind of been working through Ephesians in ha Harvest Men and Ladies. And so we're going to just take the opportunity to, to round off the last few chapters um, over this series. Why 1 Corinthians 7? Why spend two weeks in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, because of the confusion both outside and inside the church on the issues that 1 Corinthians 7 speaks to, and pastoral clarity and comfort from these ver verses is much needed and is so necessary. It's probably one of the places in the Bible uh, where the Apostle Paul, where God speaks to the issues that are in it um, more than any other. And just a note to say up front, as we kind of dive into these things, um, Paul, God's Word, is addressing different groups of people, but all of us need to hear all of this and apply all of it all of the time, okay? If you're single, if you're married, if you're a widow, whatever your status might be, we need to disciple one another and care for one another, and that means that we don't switch our ears off when the section we think doesn't apply to us. It does apply to us because there's people around us who are in that situation and who need our love, care, and discipleship. And you will have family and friends in these situations, and you will need to be able to speak into these things from God's Word. So these things apply to us all of the time, all of them. So I'm just going to read the first 16 verses um, to get us started. We'll read the, the last little section up to 24 until the end. So please um, hear the word of the Lord alongside me. 1 Corinthians 7, chap, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Conjugal rights there just means kind of marital duty, fulfilling their sexual um, desires. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession not a command, I say this. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. 
But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me just pray briefly as we come to consider these things. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us by your spirit, that you reveal to us how we are to live out our lives in this age, in this world, in the things that are mentioned in this passage. We pray for softness of heart. We pray for wisdom as we seek to hear and to respond and to obey. And we pray for humility of heart, Father, too, that we would receive these things as good, good for our souls, both now and for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So anytime you fill in a form, pretty much most forms you fill in will ask you what your marital status is. So let me ask you, what is your current response to that question? When you're asked to fill in your marital status, what is your current response to that question? How does being a Christian impact or how should it impact how we understand and live out your response to that question? How does it change or how should it change and help you live out your response to that question? Well, Paul has lots to say here, as, as you've just heard from the reading, about our marital status in this passage. In a culture where marriage is outdated, divorce is easy, sex is a commodity, chastity is laughable, and in a culture where people don't know what to do with singleness, and that's often true of the church too, if we're honest, God brings us much needed clarity and purpose here in his word on these things. So we recognize that marital status represents a significant part of our lives, doesn't it? Marital status represents a significant part of our lives. And if you're a Christian, your marital status is this, that you are married to Christ. That's your primary marital status. If you're a Christian, you are married to Christ. Your marriage to him totally transforms whatever your current marital status is. If you aren't a Christian or you're a new one, then you're kind of in the same boat as the people in Corinth who are seeking to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the current situation that they're in with the current marital status they have. So if you're not a Christian, this is what it would look like for you to live out Jesus's commandments. Spoiler alert, what he calls us to here is good, it's purposeful, it's fulfilling, and it's pleasing to God. Even though it's deeply countercultural, it's good and it's pleasing and purposeful to God. And here's the general principle throughout the next two weeks, okay? 1 Corinthians 7, here is the general principle for you and me. Be concerned and content to obey God's commands in whatever marital status you're currently called to. It's kind of simple, actually. It's kind of, it's kind of pretty simple. Whatever marital status you're in right now, Paul says your primary concern, my primary concern, and my, our primary concern and contentedness is to obey God, whatever that status is. Okay, Paul's not saying that status can't change. 
or that there aren't exceptions. He's going to talk about that. But the basic premise and principle is this. Obey God. Get on with doing that. That's all of our primary concern and primary call to contentment. We're going to look at marriage particularly this week and then singleness more next week, although they both kind of intertwine with one another. So first thing we see this morning is this. Keeping God's commands where I am called means firstly enjoying sex within marriage. I hope you're ready for this bit. Enjoying sex within marriage. Verse 1, Paul's responding to something that the Corinthians have said to him or written to him or believe. Um, A a number of questions or statements that they've made. You see that at the top of the chapter, verse 1. Chapter 7, he picks up on this particular statement, which in the ESV and in a number of translations is in quotation marks to kind of set it out. Some people in Corinth were saying this. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, some people in Corinth seem to believe that sex should be avoided altogether. And, and in church history, at times, that has been something that has been believed, that celibacy or being married to the church is some kind of higher calling or more noble way of life. But in verse 1 to 6, Paul teaches that marriage is good and that sex within the context of marriage is also good and right and should be enjoyed generously by each spouse. And in verse 2, he gives us one reason why sex within marriage is not to be avoided. If you look down verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And that's not the only reason God gives sex within marriage. God gives sex within marriage as a good gift to be enjoyed that would glue, if you want to think about it that way, that would glue a man and a woman together as one flesh in love for their service to Jesus and also as a means by which they might have children. But Paul's also being very realistic here. Although sex and marriage is more than just a safeguard against sexual immorality and lack of self-control, it's not less than that. Paul is concerned about the sin of sexual immorality, which is something he's been talking about in the two previous chapters, hence why he's uh, emphasizing that aspect of sex within marriage here. Chapter 5, he's been telling them not to tolerate people who've been committing sexual immorality within the church. And then in chapter 6, verse 18, he's been telling everyone to flee from sexual immorality. So that's why the topic's uh, on the top of his mind. What is sexual immorality? Any sexual relations outside the context of monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Sex outside this context is sin. It's ripping sex out of its God-given context. It's sticking two fingers up at God and using it for our own pleasure and purpose rather than for His. How do we know that that's the only context for sexual relations? Because of verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, what's the solution to that? It's not sleep with a prostitute, sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, sleep with the same sex. It's not watch porn. It's not get married to someone of the same sex. It's each man should have his own wife, wife, marriage. Each man, each wife, man and woman, heterosexual, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's the context for sex. So if you aren't married to someone of the opposite sex, the Bible says you should not be having any sexual relations. Chastity however outdated and laughable that might be in our world, 
is what's commanded of us, and it's good. It's totally countercultural. And maybe you're sitting here right now thinking, it's so restrictive, it's so narrow, you can't tell me what to do with my body. No, I, I can't, but God does. Chapter 6, Paul's been telling us that our bodies matter. They matter to God. They belong to God. And for Christians particularly, when we get into bed with someone, not our spouse, either physically or mentally or virtually, we are essentially dragging Jesus in there with us. That's what he's been saying in chapter 6. Loved one's sex outside of marriage does not end well. The pleasures of sin are temporary and fleeting and destructive. Either in where it leaves us in our standing before God or the negative consequences we'll experience in this life. Christopher Ash, um, in writing about sex outside marriage, says this, any sexual relations outside marriage carries with it a high social and personal cost. Notice that our decisions about what we do with our bodies does impact other people around us, our families, our society. Comes with a high social and personal cost in family breakdown, destructive jealousies, resentments, bitterness, and hurt. We could add to that the effect that sexual immorality has on the life of the church for those who are Christians, on its health and on its witness. Consistently having sexual relations outside of marriage is like trying to reapply the, the glue of a sticky note. You know when you write a, a sticky note, the, the glue on the sticky note, you keep sticking it to different things. You keep doing that, you keep trying to stick it. Eventually it doesn't stick anymore. That's kind of like what continual sex outside of marriage does. We become less sticky. But when we have sex within marriage, within its God-given context and apply it in the way it's supposed to, it only binds and unifies the marriage stronger and stronger over time. For all of us, Christian or not, who previously or maybe currently struggle with sex outside of marriage, know that obedience in these things eternally matters. Obedience to Jesus in these things is best. And that in Jesus there is grace. Okay, I'm not pretending that we haven't messed up in this, right? Who's not messed up in this? Or maybe you're currently messing up in this. Know that there is grace for these things. There's forgiveness. There's redemption. There can be cleansing when we've fallen short in this area. And that there's help to keep these kind of commands. So go to God for that cleansing and that forgiveness. Seek help from one another in these things. And know the truths of God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11, just, over, just, just previous to chapter 7. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor many practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, that's who you are now. Those things don't need to no, no longer define you. And as we seek to live these things out, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, just a few chapters over, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's not impossible to live how God calls us to live in these areas. God is faithful and he will not, will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
So just as sexual activity outside of marriage is not good, so too Paul wants to emphasize here that sexual inactivity within marriage is also not good, okay? In marriage, sex is a gift to be enjoyed. Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, sex is good, okay? You guys are too restrictive. Don't be restricting sex within marriage. Paul is pro-sex. Make no mistake about it. He's just saying, keep it within marriage. Verses 3 to 4 teaches that. They show us that the husband and wife should mutually seek to be generous with their bodies when it comes to sex. Neither spouse gets to be selfish when it comes to their body. The other spouse has a claim on them. 1 Corinthians 7 uses the language of authority. Sex is primarily about selflessly seeking to satisfy the other person. It's primarily a way to give. That's the word used in verse 3. Give to his wife. It's primarily about giving and getting. Again, that's totally against the grain of how we so often view sex. It's supposed to be self-pleasure. It's all about getting pleasure for ourselves. When God has given it as a gift to bless our spouse. And to be clear, verse 3 to 5 isn't teaching that a spouse can just click their fingers or guilt the other spouse into sex. Or worse, abusively coerce their spouse into sex. What he's teaching here is that in a loving, selfless marriage, sex is readily enjoyed rather than restricted. It is a gift to be given and enjoyed mutually. And verse 5 tells us, regularly. Paul's big concern here is that married couples don't deprive one another. Verse 5, look down, do not deprive one another. And with that command, he gives an exception with four, four kind of conditions. The conditions are this, except perhaps by agreement, so both have to agree, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, third. And then fourthly, he says, make sure you come back together again, though, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in verse 6, he goes on to say that this temporary except, exception, verse 6, is a concession. It's not a command. Married couples don't have to abstain from sex, although sometimes it may be necessary or a part of our marriage due to medical or physical reasons. Two big reasons why he says it's a concession and not a command. Self-control and Satan. Self-control, we can read it here in verse 5, and I don't know about how you, how you read this when I first read this this week. Verse, verse 5, and then again in verse 9, he talks about how it's a guard against self-control. And we think, wow, it seems like a really carnal reason to get married, doesn't it? Aren't Christians meant to all grow in the fruit of self-control? Isn't lack of self-control a sign of immaturity? Yes, self-control, and sexual self-control particularly, here is something that all Christians need to grow in. Whether married or not, we have the Spirit and we are commanded to do that in Galatians. And make no mistake, it's as essential within marriage as it is without. Paul's not saying here that married people get to have less self-control. In talking about marriage being a guard against lack of sexual self-control, <coughs> as he's talking about marriage being a guard against lack of self-control, as we've already mentioned, he's addressing the particular concern that he's already been talking about here in Corinthians, that of sexual immorality. He's highlighting that. Although marriage, he's basically saying, although marriage was designed to be much more than a safeguard against 
lack of self-control is not less than that, and it is a good way to both enjoy the gift of sex and guard against temptation to sin. So sex within marriage is good. Sex outside of marriage isn't good. Marriage provides a good safeguard against sexual immorality. Husband and wife should be generous when it comes to sex. Yet, marriage and sex within marriage are not the only good options on the table. And that's what we see next. Keeping God's commands where I'm called means firstly enjoying sex within marriage and secondly valuing singleness, verses 7 to 9. So Paul's just highlighted the, the goodness of sex within marriage and encouraged it. Now in verses 7 to 9, he highlights the goodness of singleness. You look down, he states that he wishes everyone was like him, but is single, unmarried. He's kind of overstating himself as he does in, in other parts of Corinthians to make a point. I wish that all were as I am, okay? I think Paul had a category for people getting married. He's kind of exaggerating to overstate his point to make sure we get the fact that singleness is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. In verse 7, Paul says he sees marriage and singleness both equally as gifts. His own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So they are both gifts and they are both good. Okay, this coming from the person who wrote Ephesians 5, which we'll come to in a few weeks, from the person who held marriage so highly and knew of its eternal and earthly significance. Here we have Paul and in the rest of the New Testament, uh, Jesus himself, as we'll see next week, both by their teaching and their lives, force, forcing us to reckon with the Bible's balance on marriage and singleness. So whilst we might still understand marriage to be the, the normative pattern, something God established at creation, marriage and having children are not as central in God's redemptive plans as they were in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, singleness is elevated in status. The coming of Jesus changed all of those things. And again, we'll think a bit more about why that is next week. So, so being unmarried is good. It's a gift. Paul is getting us to see it's a good option. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain single. Good. Let that sit for a minute. It's good for them to remain unmarried. Maybe you're single or you're a widow and you're thinking, singleness is a gift. It's not a very nice one. Something we need to see in these verses, both for married people and single people, is that whatever state we find ourselves in, Paul calls it a gift. And as gifts, they are to be received with gratitude and lived out with contentment for as long as we're in them. Most of us, all of us will be single at some point. Some of us may be married, some for longer than others. Some may be single for longer than others. All of us will receive both of these things. I don't think these things are supposed to be kind of permanent gifts. They're kind of permanently bestowed on any one person. And as gifts, we need to think about them as gifts because as gifts, they are not ultimately for our benefit. I want to get married. I don't want to be married anymore. It's too hard. They're not ultimately for our benefit. Like the gifts Paul goes on to speak about later on in Corinthians, 
They are for God and they are for the church body. Viewing our marital status this way should radically change how we view our our current status, how we live out our marriages or singleness. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about others. That's a good thing. Yet Paul states an exception to his encouragement. Verse 9, again, if you look down, but they cannot exercise self-control. They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul's being realistic. Yes, anyone who is single should be seeking to cultivate contentment and self-control, just like all people, all married people too, but it is better to marry than to commit sexual immorality So if you have strong sexual desires and the opportunity for marriage arises, marriage is a good option. Singleness shouldn't be shunned. Paul also gives another exception, which we'll think again about next week. That is of young widows in 1 Timothy 5. He would have them marry. So singleness is a good gift. should be valued and not considered an affliction or an abnormality. Marriage is also a good gift. It should be valued and pursued, but not idolized or entered into for selfish reasons. For as long as we are single or married, we should consider them gifts to be used for God and not ourselves. How do we know if we're gifted for these things? I once heard someone say this, well, look at your left, look at your left hand and look at your ring finger. That's what gift you have right now. If you're single and desire marriage, that's not a bad thing. It's fine to desire marriage. Pray for it. Pursue it even. But know that your life is not on hold until you get married. You're not less mature or less of a man or woman because you're not married. For all of us, let's continue to pursue holiness and seek to grow in self-control, something we're all called to. And as a church, whilst we must hold marriage in high esteem, we must not over-egg it either. We mustn't over-egg marriage in a world that idolizes romantic relationships and sex. We must actively seek to include everyone into our church family and into our biological families too. We must make sure that singles aren't made to feel like spare parts. That requires all of us. And we must also honor marriage in a world that devalues it. We've got to do that too. We've got to encourage marriage. It's not wrong to encourage marriage. In the same way it's not wrong to encourage, maybe someone should consider singleness at their stage in life. We should teach about marriage. We should model healthy marriages and do everything we can to keep marriages together. And that's the next thing that Paul goes on to speak about here. Keeping God's commands where I'm called means enjoying sex within marriage, valuing singleness, and thirdly, staying married. If you look down at verses 10 to 16, Paul addresses those who are already married. In verses 10 to 11, he's thinking about two Christians married. Verses 12 to 16, he's thinking about a Christian married to a non-Christian. And in verse 10 to 11 here, he draws on Jesus' teaching. That's what he means by I, not the Lord. Um, He's not saying, he's saying, he's drawing on Jesus' teaching. He's saying, I'm not speaking here. This is what Jesus has already taught. Jesus' teaching, as we see in places like Matthew 5 and 19. Uh, and, and just to note, we preached on uh, 
divorce and adultery and remarriage in Matthew 5 a number of months ago. That'll be online or in the archives if you want to look that up. I'd encourage you to listen to that if you want to, if you have more questions about what I'm about to kind of just speak briefly on here or come and speak to me at any time about any of these things. Paul states here that one spouse should not divorce the other spouse and that if they do, they should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their spouse. And remarriage here is not an option. Okay, that's what 10 to 11 teach us. The emphasis here, okay, here's the emphasis here in this part of the Bible. Stay married. If you're married, there's a ring on your finger. That's your current marital status. That's what you take in the form. Stay married. Remain married. Yet in a sinful world where people's hearts are hard, God permits but does not require divorce on two grounds. Again, we thought about this a few months ago. The two grounds are sexual immorality, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, verses 12 to 16, just below here. Yet in Jesus' day, and even in our own today, marriage and divorce are taken far too lightly. And Paul, in keeping with Jesus, is seeking to re-emphasize the creational intention for marriage, a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. These verses here, this stress on the permanence of marriage reminds us that marriage requires sacrifice, selflessness, and hard work. If there's a ring on your finger, those things are required of you. They are necessary to keep your marriage together. Selflessness, sacrifice, hard work requires repentance and forgiveness. It is meant to be a lifelong union that displays the gospel and that provides stability and nurture for children and society. Marriage matters, so if you're married, stay married. What about Christians married to a non-Christian? There's kind of two ways that can happen. You get married and then you become a Christian later in life and your spouse doesn't. Or maybe you at one time claimed to be a Christian or were were walking with the Lord and you knowingly got married to a non-Christian. First up, before we we touch on this, and I say this with much grace, but with the reality that this is a really common uh, pastoral situation in the life of most churches, do not get married or enter into a relationship with a non-Christian if you call yourself a Christian. Don't do it. If you call yourself a Christian, do not get married or enter into any kind of relationship with a non-Christian. It's disobedient to God's clear commands. If you flick over to verse 39 in chapter 7, when he says that widows can remarry, he says it's only in the Lord. It's only in the Lord. Don't do it because it's against God's commands. It will involve pain. And there's no guarantee your spouse will get saved. That's what verse 16 tells us. How do you know whether you'll save your spouse? Flirt to convert, as you've maybe humorously heard it before. Flirt to convert does not work. It's disobedient. It sets you up for pain and tension and heartbreak. And there's no guarantee your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend will be saved. Pursuing a relationship or marriage with an unbeliever or someone who isn't evidently walking with Jesus, even though we would like to think that they are, so that we can marry them, 
whilst calling yourself a Christian, doing that against the counsel of God's word and other Christians is not fruit in keeping with repentance and does not put you on a good trajectory with God in judgment day. If you call yourself a Christian and only married a non-Christian, that's something that needs to be repented of and it needs to be owned. But if you're in Christ, you can rest in the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus. There's no need to be ashamed or guilty. If you've sought forgiveness from the Lord, it is yours. And your marriage is still good. If you aren't yet married, but in a relationship with someone who isn't walking with Jesus, for the sake of your soul and theirs, it needs to end. It needs to end now. Not just for the sake of your soul, but for theirs. If you really want to see them saved, the worst thing, one of the worst things you can do for them is marry them. This is a common issue, and we need to courageously speak the truth and love to our friends and family, and maybe even to those within our church family on this issue. All of us can sweep this under the carpet. We need to be gracious and patient and prayerful, but speak the truth and love on this issue. Yet in God's common grace, there will still be good things about these marriages. What should someone do if they find themselves already in this position? Well, in Corinth, some thought that the marriage should end. Okay, that's why Paul's kind of really highlighting it shouldn't end. Some thought that that kind of marriage should end. Someone's become a Christian, the other one's not. That should end. Or that being married to an unbeliever made the marriage unclean. It doesn't. Or that the believer would be defiled by having sex with an unbeliever. They aren't. Or that children in that marriage would be unclean. He's saying, no, none of that's true. Paul tells us, okay, verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And just a, a side note, it's not as if Paul's saying, here's what I think, just on top of what Jesus thinks. He's saying, no, what he's saying there is, Jesus hasn't spoken specifically to, to this issue, but as an authoritative apostle, I'm now speaking to it. I, not the Lord. If your spouse is content to live with you as you live out your faith, don't divorce them. God is pleased when an unbelieving spouse contents to live with a believing spouse and the marriage vows should be joyfully fulfilled. The marriage is a good thing. It's not a second-class marriage. Let me emphasize that. It's a wonderful thing. Why should the marriage continue? Verse 14, because the holiness of the believing spouse makes the unbelieving spouse and any children also holy. Okay, not in the sense that they themselves actually become holy. It's not like holiness is transferred when you hug a believer. It's not as if they're going to be automatically saved. Verse 16 makes that clear. But that because they live with a believing spouse or parent, they come into contact with holiness. In this sense, they are set apart in a way that other unbelievers aren't. They come under the influence of that believer's holiness. They get to see holiness. They get to see Jesus up close. So it's in that sense that they are made holy. The holiness of the believing spouse serves to show that whole family Jesus. That's a great thing. And sexual union within that marriage is good. And so the children of that marriage should not be considered unclean, but holy. And the husband and wife in that marriage should enjoy sexual intimacy within the marriage. 
Yet 15, verse 15, also reminds us, as we've mentioned, that hearts are hard and marriage is often hard too. Especially maybe in this case. Where the unbeliever and the believer have to wrestle with such different worldviews and beliefs and outlooks in life. And so we hear we see that if an unbelieving spouse leaves or abandons a marriage, then the believing spouse is not enslaved. They are no longer bound to that marriage and divorce is permitted. Again, we must stress, permitted, not required. If an unbelieving spouse leaves, the best case scenario is reconciliation, repentance, especially when kids are involved. But sometimes that doesn't work out. I've known cases like that. The unbeliever just completely disappears, remarries and goes off and lives another life. Here we see that God gives a believing spouse who doesn't abandon the marriage freedom to divorce and by consequence, freedom to remarry. Just a side note, I mentioned it back in Matthew 5. These are not easy things to figure out, to work out. Seek the, the Bible's wisdom on these things alongside godly people within a church. Because these things require much wisdom and much help. So if you are a believer, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, and again, remember, these things apply to all of us because we seek to help and encourage, pray for and disciple one another. If you're a believer married to an unbeliever, pray for the salvation of your unbelieving spouse and get your church to pray for them. This church will gladly do that. Live before, live a godly life graciously before your unbelieving spouse. 1 Peter 3 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Live a godly life in front of them. It's one of the best things you can do. Joyfully fulfill your marriage vows and love your unbelieving spouse well. Don't sacrifice your marriage to them for the sake of the church. Be part of the church. Commit to the church, but your marriage matters too even if your spouse isn't always there. Church, as a church, we need to care for believers in these marriages. Help them, maybe particularly with family discipleships, which may be harder to do. And if you are the non-Christian spouse, value and respect your spouse's faith. Their pursuit of Christ-likeness and membership of a healthy church is beneficial for you and your family. Pursue faithfulness in your marriage too and turn to Jesus in faith. That's your spouse's longest, uh, deepest longing and it would be ours as a church too. So keeping God's commands where I'm called means enjoying sex within marriage, valuing singleness, staying married, and then finally knowing that status is secondary. I'm going to read verses 17 to 24. If you look down with me. And Paul really here is getting to the heart of what he's talking about. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was it anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain, remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called on the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So here really is the heart of the passage, the general principle. Paul's highlighting that circumstances and status are not what is most important in life. So when you fill in that form and you take that marital status box, whatever you take, that is not the most important thing about you. Serving and obeying God is. These verses show us that we shouldn't be concerned that that, that the situation that God calls us in and which we currently find ourselves in stops us from living and serving Jesus to the fullest. And in fact, the encouragement here is not to be preoccupied with changing our circumstances, but to be content and getting on with serving Christ. We can change our circumstances. It's fine to want to do that. When the opportunity avails itself, it's not a bad thing. Paul says that again in verse 21. But if you can gain your freedom, go ahead and do it. It's just a change in circumstance isn't necessary to serve Jesus. The two examples Paul gives to illustrate this are circumcision and being a bondservant. Circumcision was a requirement under the old covenant, but in the new covenant it's no longer required. So some people might have thought, or, or they were being told by others, hey, you need to get circumcised now you're a Christian. Or, or hey, circumcision, hey, you're a Christian, circumcision's a sign of legalism. You better get rid of the signs that you've been circumcised. I don't know how you would go about doing that, but anyway. Paul's saying it doesn't matter anymore. Your religious or non-religious background doesn't hinder you from serving Christ wholeheartedly now. Verse 19, for neither circumcision or, or, or circumcision, uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God. How might we apply that to us today? Maybe it's getting rid of old tattoos, dressing a certain way, whatever it might be. Or if we apply this principle to the surrounding issues of marriage and singleness, Paul is saying it doesn't matter what your relationship status is, married or single. What is more important and what will bring greater contentment in life is preoccupying ourselves with obeying God's commands. That's what matters most. Second illustration is that of a bondservant. Some Bibles, like the NIV or the CSB, will translate this as slave. Okay, and when we hear that word slave, we sometimes um, it carries associations with the evil and dehumanizing uh, slavery in, in 19th century North America or uh, the abhorrent modern-day sex trafficking trade. But the word slave in the New Testament covers a whole range of relationships that's more nuanced than that, which is reflected in how the ESV uses the word bondservant here. For the Greek word doulos. Okay, we don't have enough time to do justice to this important issue in the Bible and how the Bible speaks to it. Let me just say this, and if you want to speak more about it, I'm happy to do that. However, the, the whole Bible consistently and explicitly teaches that you cannot own another person and must not abuse or exploit another person because they are human beings created in the image of God. And in fact, what we see in the New Testament, for example, in places like Philemon, is how the gospel was beginning to completely upend what this kind of relationship looked like. So what's Paul getting at in verses 21 to 23 here? All this chat about bondservant and free, freedom and all this kind of thing. He was addressing those who were concerned, verse 21, if you look down. There was people who were bondservants and they were concerned that their social status hindered them from serving Jesus. Paul's saying, don't be concerned about that. You're not going to be less impactful. You're not less useful to Jesus. 
Paul says, no, you are still useful. He tells them that your, your status in relation to others is second to your status according to Christ. That's what verse 22 is really getting at. Hey, if you're a bond servant, the more significant thing about you is that you're a free person in Christ. You're free from the slavery and punishment of sin. Hey, if you're a free person, the more significant thing about you is that you're a slave of Christ. You belong to him and for him, which is much better. So you can change your social status, that's fine. And in fact, I'd encourage bond servants to gain their freedom if they can, but your status of being in Christ is way more important. It's true of you now, and it will always be the most significant status that you have. So if we were to apply that to ourselves, maybe this example of bond servant, doesn't matter what job we have, what social status or background we have, how much we earn, what influence or power we have in society, we can serve Christ to the fullest and are not second-rate Christians. Tom Schreiner, the commentator, helpfully kind of summarizes it this way. I think this is so helpful. Paul assures believers that their social status, though so significant in the eyes of their contemporaries, and we might say so significant in our own hearts and minds sometimes too, often too significant. Something that's so significant in our own hearts and we let those around us make it a really big deal too. Paul assures believers that their social status matters little to God. They should rest in the places where God has planted them and fulfill their roles in the places where God has called them to now. That's freeing. Wherever you are right now, whatever your relationship status is right now, you can serve Jesus to the fullest. Doesn't mean you can't change those things, but you can live life to the full in service of Jesus no matter what that is. And verse 23 tells us, if you're a Christian, you've been bought with a price. God in his love sent Christ to buy us out of our slavery to sin with his own blood. That's what verse 23 tells us. You were bought with a price. He took our debt upon himself, paid it in full so that through faith in him we might be eternally free. That is who we all are in Christ. Together, our social or marital status is secondary to that status. The status of being precious and free children of God. The status of being called to a glorious life of service and obedience to Jesus, both in this life and the life to come. So loved ones, let's be concerned and content to obey God's commands in whatever marital status we are currently called. Know that all of us, no matter what that is, have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We've been freed from slavery to sin, raised to the status of sons and daughters with Christ, and called in this life to serve him as we await the return of our bridegroom, Jesus. So let's stop being preoccupied with changing our circumstances. It's not bad. Sometimes it's a good thing. Let's seek instead to serve Jesus to the fullest in and through our current circumstances. Let's rest in the place we are, fulfill the role we currently have with gratitude and joy, and lean on the grace and provision of Jesus as we do that. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you bought us with a price. We thank you that you loved all of us enough 
to send Jesus into the world when our status was sinners, when our status was those who rejected you, who hated you, who were wandering, who were broken. Yet you lifted us from the pit, you redeemed us, you washed us, you sanctified us, you cleansed us. We thank you, Father, that that is what we get to be in Jesus. And Father, we pray that whatever situation we find ourselves in, however much we may love that or wrestle with that or long for a change, Father, help us to know that in whatever circumstances we're in, we can know the joy and the fulfillment and the freedom of serving you. Give us wisdom as we seek to live these things out. Help us to help one another live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen.